James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of your Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Like, don't have preference. Don't have prejudice. It's tell, that's what it's telling us to do. It's like, don't have favorites. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here, it's a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet, you have not, you have, you have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. And then James says, listen. Like, in case you weren't paying attention, listen. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised for those who love him? Basically, he's saying those people who choose to follow Jesus, those people who, who have identified with Jesus, they may not have much now, but at some point, they're going to have a lot of riches in heaven. So it's kind of like a, a delayed uh, glory, delayed riches. Um, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppose you and, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones that blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So basically it's saying at the beginning of this piece of scripture, James is saying, I want to remind you. Like, we shouldn't be playing favorites. We shouldn't be only identifying the people that we most feel comfortable with. We shouldn't be partial and then he says, like, you shouldn't be allowing people to work for their seats, which is very common in a lot of other religions, actually. And if you're not careful, it can even become part of your life. Like, if I just work good enough, if I work hard enough, if I have enough this, if I have enough that, and we start getting our identity from all of these places that are actually incorrect. But if we're not careful, that's what happens to us. And so this happens in other places and we're okay with it. So like if we take a, if we're going to go to a concert and we pull up the, the thing to get on our website to get the tickets and we look, well, I can't really afford those seats because they cost a little bit too much. I can't really afford those seats. So I'll sit like way, way in the back. Then it's okay because we're like, I'm paying for these seats. But if we're not careful, we do the same thing in the way that we live our life. And we say, I'm going to identify with this person because they're tall. I'm going to identify with this person because they believe the way that I believe. I'm going to identify with this person because they like what I like. And James says, be careful because it's not you get what you earn. That's called works. It's about you get what Jesus earned, and that's called grace. And it's super challenging. Like, we want that for us. We want to receive what Jesus gives us grace when it's us. But when somebody goes against us, when somebody harms us, when somebody does something to us, we want justice, not grace. And he says, be careful. And, and I want you to make sure that you understand that even though James is using this specific example right here about rich and poor, it's actually not just about rich and poor. I mean, as you read it, that's what it's talking about. But I want you to understand that. So if you say that rich people are bad and poor people are good, are you not doing the exact same thing, just opposite? And so what happens is we get started, we're like, well, that's bad. For rich people to say that they're good and poor people, and they say that poor people are bad, we've got to do something about that because that's an injustice and we switch it. And so we say, well, okay, now poor people are good and rich people are bad. 
We do the same thing in all other areas of our life if we're not careful. So men deserve this and women deserve this. And it makes us uncomfortable, so we switch it. We'll say, well, women deserve all of this and men get something less. And all we're doing is switching it. But we're still playing favorites and we're still being judgmental. And we're still being partial, which is what it says not to do. What about this? I'll just give you one. I'm, I'm just going to lay this out there. The one that's, that, that I struggle with the most is young and old. That's the one that I struggle with the most. Partly because old people scare me. Like, it is kind of funny, but I'm being serious. Like, I, I would rather, like, if we're going to divide the room, I would rather, let's have the young people up front and let's put the old people in the back because they scare me. But I think we know. Intuitively, we know that that's not right. But yet, in other areas of our life, that's how we live. Just because someone's not like you, just because somebody doesn't wear the same clothes as you, just because somebody doesn't identify with what you identify with, just because somebody doesn't live the way that you think that they should live, doesn't mean that you should not love them. But that's what we do. We pick the things that we like, and we love those people. And we pick the things that we don't like, and we shun those people. And so James is pointing it out to us that that's not exactly how we're supposed to live our life. And his example is rich and poor. But what if we did the same thing with race? Only certain ethnicities can sit in the chairs and everybody else gets to sit in the back. And we're like, that's an injustice. So we'll put the people who are in the chairs in the back and everybody else now gets to come sit in the chairs. It's the exact same thing but reverse. And James says, what you need to understand is that it's actually about love. And he, he gives us the solution. It's kind of interesting. He gives us the solution actually in the first verse. So we read one through seven, and he gave us the solution to the problem in the very first verse. And he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of, what does it say? Let's try that one more time. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of, what does it say? The Lord of glory. He says, don't play favorites. Be careful not to play favorites because God the Father doesn't have favorites. Now, I know that we've got like 10,000 people at the well who are now about to have a child. But we have very few people, we have very few people in our church that actually have more than one child, okay? I have two children, and let's just pretend for a moment that I'm like, I have a favorite. Like, that's not cool, is it, if I have a favorite? Like, oh, this child could come and sit close to me while we're eating because they have a higher GPA, and the other one has to sit in the other room. It's not cool, is it? This child can sit next to me because they have a bigger bank account. This child can sit next to me. And what this is saying is God doesn't have any favorites. He's your father, and he doesn't have any favorites. And it doesn't matter where you sit as long as you're at the table. But see, it creates us a dilemma because certain seats have more emphasis, right? 
like in our society. Certain seats have more glory. Certain seats have more emphasis. Certain seats um, have more value. And so we try to position ourselves in our society so that we can make sure that we're in the right seat because that seat has more value. And it doesn't really matter what seat you're in because the reality is there's only one seat that has the most value and that seat is called a throne and the throne is where King Jesus sits and how do you know that the throne is where the king sits because that's the way that it's always been a king always sits on the throne King Jesus sits on his throne and we can read about it in scripture and so the reality is we get really confused about what seat is the most important where should we sit how should I position myself I want to be most like this I want to surround the people people with myself who who give me glory who give me honor, who give me praise, and that's not really what scripture tells us at all. Revelation chapter 4 verse 10 gives us a really interesting insight into the seat thing. This is what it says. It says, the 24 elders fall down before him. Quick question, not a pop, well I guess it is a pop quiz, but it's not a trick question. It says, the 24 elders fall down before him. So which seat are they in? They're not even in a seat. Look what it says. Fascinating. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So here's what's going on here. These guys aren't even seated in a chair. They fall down before the one seat that really matters, the seat of the throne that King Jesus is on, and they take their crowns, which represent great things, and those great things no longer matter, and they lay them before him. But what you and I do is we like try to gather up all this good stuff. Look at the seat that I'm in. Look how much stuff that I've gathered. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And scripture says that none of that matters because at some point we're not even going to care that we don't even have a seat because we're going to be bowed down before the Lord King Jesus who sits on the throne and we're giving him glory and we're giving him honor and it doesn't matter who's on your left and it doesn't matter who's on your right and it doesn't matter who was in front of you and it doesn't matter who's in behind you because all that matters is that you see the glory of Jesus. And so what James is trying to communicate to us is that our real struggle is love. Like, we're really good at certain kinds of love. Like, we're really good. If we're honest, most of us are pretty good at selfish love. But we're not all that good at selfless love. Like, we're always looking out for ourselves. And it's really popular today in our society. I hear this term from time to time. I'm just having a hard time loving myself. Like, have you heard this before? Have you heard people say this before? Um, I don't think that that's actually true. Like, I'm just having a hard time loving myself. Well, then why are you still talking about it? Like, that comes actually pretty natural. For us to love ourselves comes pretty natural. And what James is saying is, let's just be careful that we don't, that we don't misproject our love. 
He's not saying not to love yourself. Jesus never said that. Matter of fact, Matthew chapter 22. So in this particular thing, you don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen for you in just a second. But Matthew chapter 22, what's going on here is people are asking Jesus. So they call Jesus rabbi, teacher, and they're asking him, hey, there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament, 613. And Jesus, could you like give me the, the, the bottom line? What's the, the lowest level? What, how do I need to sum all of this up? And Jesus is like, oh, I can tell you that. And he says in verse 37, and Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He said, love God with everything that you've got, with your intellect, with your emotions, with your feelings, with your life, love God. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, he's not telling you not to love yourself. He's just saying, whatever you do for yourself, do for the people around you. And some of you are like, well, I don't know. I don't really do anything for myself. Well, you got up this morning and put on clothes. At some point today, you're going to eat some food. Like we do lots of things for ourselves. And he's not saying to not do things for yourself. He's saying whatever it is that you do for yourself, make sure that you do for others. That's what he's saying. And then it says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So that's what Jesus says. Now James is going to borrow from that very terminology. Look what he says, James chapter 2, starting in verse 8. This is what it says. If you really fulfill the royal law, so he's, what he's talking about there is, if you really do those two things, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor at your, as yourself, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the, what does it say? Let's try it one more time. According to the scriptures. Like it doesn't say according to your preference. Don't feel, fulfill the royal law according to the way that you want it to be, according to your personal preference, according to what you would prefer it to be, according to Scripture. And we just looked at one piece of Scripture when James says, don't, let, don't make a seating chart based upon somebody's clothes or how much money they have. And we don't have time. There's tons of Scriptures. We don't have time to look at them all that give us very specific examples. But then it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well if you do those things. Like when we start talking about love, most of us can identif easily identify the ways that we're not being loved well. Like, yes, my friend doesn't, doesn't really appreciate me, doesn't value me, doesn't love me. Yes, my spouse doesn't appreciate me, doesn't value, doesn't love me. Like we're really good at identifying those ways that somebody doesn't love us, but we're not as quick to identify the ways that we actually don't love those around us. And what James is trying to tell us here is be careful. Don't have preference. Don't be judgmental. And then it says in verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. If you show partiality you are committing sin 
you're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for it all. Like you can keep all of those other 611 laws and not love God or not love people and you're sinning. It would be kind of like this. I know that we have a few teachers that go to the well, and I don't know what this is called, so I actually need somebody to help me out. So every year, I think it depends on what grade you're in, but there's some test that you have to take at, in Texas, like you've got to take this test to do whatever, what's it called? Star test, star test. So you've got to take this star test, so it would be like this. We're all in here today, and we're taking the star test, and we got all of them right except one. And the teacher says, you fail. That's what this is like. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't like that. Like, that's not pleasant. That's not fun. That's not encouraging. If you do all of these things great and you fail one thing, you commit sin. And you're held accountable. And then he goes on to give a very specific example. This is what it says. Um, in verse 11, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Um, interesting that he uses these two specific examples, right? Like murder and adultery. Like we try to like finagle our way around certain things, right? Like we say, well, it wasn't really a lie. Like there's certain, there certain things, can we say, uh, certain sins that we try to like negotiate with and they're not that big of a deal. But he picks right here to help us identify this particular illustration, murder and adultery. Like those are not like, you can't really do those halfway, right? Like you can't, I, I only murdered him 50%. <laughs> like it doesn't really work that way. no. You tell your spouse, your spouse, I'm sorry, it really wasn't a, it wasn't a hundred percent adultery. It was just seventy five percent adultery. Like, is that going to work? No, it's not going to work. And so he gives those as an example, and then it says this: If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a tr transgressor of the law. When you do all of them but one, it says that you're a sinner, that you're bad, that, you, that he's perfect and you're imperfect. Actually, if you look specifically, Jesus at other times simply says this, you should be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Like, I can't, I can't speak for you, but there, it doesn't matter how hard I try, like, there are times when I try really hard. And it doesn't matter how hard I try, I can't be perfect. And so it becomes a little bit of a challenge. And then we compare ourselves to other people. Like, we always compare. We just find somebody who's a little bit worse than us, right? And you're like, well, you shouldn't really do that. And you say, yeah, but... Tom, he lies all the time. He's a really bad person. Like we compare ourselves to somebody else to make ourselves feel better. And James is trying to tell us this isn't really what it's about. Look what it says in verse 12 and 13. Like there's good news. Like I don't know about you, but that's bad news. Like you're bad. If you do one of these things, it's not looking good for you. You're a sinner. Like that's not, it's kind of like, good morning, welcome to the well. You're bad, you're a sinner. 
Like, this is not fun. This is not pleasant. It's not encouraging. But he goes on to say, like, there's good news. Verse 12, it says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So basically what he's talking about here is he's not talking about the judgment of whether somebody is saved or not saved. What he's talking about is the people who are saved, we're gonna, there's going to be this other judgment of the good things and the bad things that we did, and it has nothing to do with your salvation, and, and that's the illustration that he's talking about here. And he says that it's important to have mercy. What you need to understand today is you and I, we cannot, we can't save ourselves. We can't change ourselves. But we should be very glad that God offers mercy. Do we understand mercy? Like mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Like you and I have a really, I have a really long list of things that I've done that have been against God. And if it were not for mercy, I hate to think about what would happen to me because of my list. And I can't do anything to change that. I can't make myself better. But the remedy, it says, is mercy. And this is what it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And this is a beautiful truth for us to not forget today. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. So for those of you that have, have been perfect on all except one, like you've been perfect on everything in your life except one time, one thing, you're still a sinner. And this says, but God shows his love for you in that while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. That's good news because it doesn't matter if your list is short. It doesn't matter if your list is long. Jesus died for you so that you could be made clean and whole. And it has nothing to do with you. And it has everything to do with him. And the one thing that I want you to understand is we were talking earlier about what seat is most important. And we talked about Jesus on the throne and that Jesus is, is the only seat that's really important. What you have to understand is that Jesus actually got up off of his seat, off of his throne, came to the earth as a man, died for the forgiveness of your sins. He was willing to do that for you and for me, for your list and for mine. So he gives you love so that you can then give him love and love the people around you. And what is it like for you and me to receive mercy? Don't miss this. Last thing. Listen. What does it look like? Why would we do this? Why would you and I receive mercy from Jesus and then require law, justice, punishment for the people who do something against us? Like we're cool Jesus, give me mercy. Jesus, give me mercy. Jesus, give me mercy. This person did something against me. Give them just, well, like, they got it. Something needs to be, they need to be punished. Something needs to happen to them. Like, we, we want mercy as long as everybody else gets justice. As long as everybody else gets what they deserve, I want mercy. And once again, 
We're trying to position ourselves to make sure that we're in the right seat. I would contend that if we truly have received mercy, there is no way that we cannot be changed by mercy. And so it's one thing for us to talk about what seat should you sit in in church. But the bigger challenge is when you walk out of this school today and you encounter someone who is unlike you, what are you going to do? What is your preference going to be? What is your partiality going to be? What are you going to do? My prayer is that you and I would be reminded that Jesus offers us mercy so that we can love the people around us, not with the love that we generate, but with the love that he generates. Because if I have to love people with the love that I generate, you know how often I love people? Not very often. Because you all do stuff that ticks me off. Seriously. My responsibility is to love you with the love that comes from Jesus to me. Not the love that I generate because it's pretty weak. James is super challenging. It's not pleasant and it's not fun. But I do think that it's very clear. He's telling us that Jesus loves us. And that because Jesus loves us, we should love those around us. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I thank you for <laughs> what I think is a super challenging book and a super challenging uh, piece of scripture this morning. And God, I just pray that you actually would <laughs> convict us.